I'd rather be in a deep dark grave and know that my Welcome to this edition of Rightly Dividing the Word of Truth podcast. This is the last part of this study on the papacy part C. I'm going to read the same text that I read for the others. Again, just for the setting. Read with me, if you will, Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 through 19. When Jesus came to the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples saying, Whom do men say that I, the son of man, am? And they said, some say that thou art John the Baptist, some say Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said unto them, but whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee, but my father, which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whosoever and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever shall be loosed on earth shall be loosed in heaven. As we come to the third and final study on the claims of the Roman Catholic Church, that the authority for the papacy is found in the New Testament scriptures. We have been examining their claim in the light of that same scripture. Now, let me say this before I go any further. I personally recognize no authority in religion, but the word of God. Now, let's ask a question here. Since we're dealing with an institute that is worldwide and is of a great age, one could ask the question, how is it possible that so many should have been for so long a time and of such an extent to have so easily been convinced of these extraordinary claims of Rome, if her pretensions are without scriptural warrant. And I believe I've established that truth by the word of God. So how is the question? First, it is a human habit or trait, we might say, to accept people or institutions at their own evaluation of themselves. I call it personal self-advertisement. Now, good advertisement do not argue. They proclaim. Let's say if there was a man named Smith, and Smith was making a certain soap, and if Smith had enough money to tell people that his soap was the best in the world, and to tell them often enough, it would not be necessary to explain or justify its alleged superiority. This is the way it is with many religious institutions. They know how to sell themselves. It is therefore irrelevant to them whether they are true or false. There was once a man that made it a point to hear all the visiting preachers who came to his town. He would look at their signs that they put up about themselves or their ministry. One would advertise himself as a modern Elijah. 
that can do great miracles. Another as a human dynamo. Another as a cowboy from the Wild West. Many years ago, I myself once knew of a preacher who claimed to have been in prison and was going to be electrocuted. But he said God got him out of it. But I can't remember how. That was a long time ago when I was a very young preacher then. He had went somewhere and found him an old electric chair, and that was his method of self-advertisement. Some old one somewhere was a real electric chair, but had been discarded. Wherever he went to hold meetings, he would show that electric chair, set it up in the very sanctuary. That's the way that he drew crowds. But back to the story of our man that went to hear all the preachers. The only thing he, did tell, he could tell you about them was what they had to say about themselves and not much more. When William, uh, President William Taft visited Toronto some years ago, he told the story about President Theodore Roosevelt. He said Theodore always reminded him of a little girl of whom he had heard who came home from school and told her mother that she was the cleverest girl in the class. I am delighted to hear that, said her mother. Did your teacher tell you that? Oh, no, replied the girl. Did the other members of your class tell you that you were the cleverest girl among them? No. Does your grade show that you are the cleverest girl? No. Then how do you know that the mother asked? The little girl proudly exclaimed, I found it out all by myself. The Roman Catholic Church for centuries has proclaimed its superiority to all other churches. It has declared that it is not one of many churches, but it's the only church. All other churches are imposters. All other ministers are fraud. So says Rome. But yet Protestant preachers and all still align themselves with Rome, knowing that Rome has admitted that these Protestant preachers are frauds and that their churches are imposters. They teach in their catechism that they are the one and only church on earth, the holy apostolic church of Rome, and that without apology. They have declared that there is but one visible head to the church, the Pope, and that submission to the Roman pontiff is absolutely indispensable to salvation. We have already stated before that there is nothing neutral or modest about the Roman Catholic Church. It boldly proclaims that it is the one and only church. It is therefore not surprising that so large a part of the world's population should come to believe it. For you see, Rome knows quite well how to market herself. Therefore, a large population of the world has come to believe it without question. They have just accepted it on its own word. Like Mr. Smith, the soap maker, or the little girl who thought she was the brightest in the class. D.L. Moody used to say that a lie could travel around the world while the truth was getting its boots on. If one is a good enough liar and he has a loud enough voice and he tells that lie enough times, people will accept what he says without asking for proof. But one, when one proclaims the truth, almost invariably people will demand that he prove it. Why is it that mankind will never ask a liar when he is telling a lie to prove it? but always when a man speaks the truth, especially from the word of God, they want him to prove it. I find that very strange, but that's the unregenerated human nature. I personally believe that in all of human history, 
There has never been foisted upon the sons of men a more colossal fraud from the foundation to the top stone like the Roman Catholic Church. It is founded on a lie. It teaches and preaches lies. It is a fabrication of falsehood through and through. And where it does touch the truth, it's only to pervert or prostitute it to its own purpose. Now, that's my introduction. Let's get into the study. Now, considering the question of Peter's supremacy that has been alleged by the Roman Catholic teacher here and the Roman Catholic Church, in our last lesson, we looked at some of those, and now we're going to look at some more in the climax of our study. First, let's look again at the book of Acts. We have in the Acts of the Apostles an inspired, an inspired story of the Christian church of the apostolic era, when the very foundation of the church was laid. The apostles in person exercised their ministry among that church. If one were only to reflect for a moment or two upon the acts of the apostles and mentally scan that record, one will reject clearly the postulation that the authority for the papacy can be strictly supported in the New Testament. Considering the outstanding personalities such as Peter and John, the first Christian martyr Stephen, the career of Saul of Tarsus who became Paul the Apostle to the Gentiles, Think of ones like Apollos, Silas, John, Mark, Mark, and James, and the other apostles. If you will but search, search the scriptures, you will fail to find a single incident in which the inspired record even suggests that Peter, beyond the exhibition of ordinary initiatives, ever took precedent over his brothers. Remember in Acts chapter 11, 1 through 18, the two examples where Peter was called to give account by his, give account he was called in to question and to give account by his Christian brothers, having gone in because he had gone into men uncircumcised. They challenged his right to do so. That alone shows us at least there was no recognition of his superior authority with them. He was justified only when he recounts his experience in Caesarea Philippi, when the Spirit of God came on the Gentiles on the occasion of his preaching to Cornelius and his household. In Acts chapter 15, we have the record of the assembling at Jerusalem, which James, the Lord's brother and not Peter, presided over the meeting. It was Peter who testified at the meeting, verse 17 through 11, who again related his experience. It was at that same council in Jerusalem where Paul and Barnabas told how God had set his seal to their testimony to the Gentiles. It was a small meeting and the findings were read by President James. This was nothing like the account of the Council of Nicaea and many of the other councils of the Roman Catholic churches, such extravaganzas, pomp and confusion. Why, even the Emperor Constantine had, Constantine had to offer large sums of money or gifts to get enough to attend to have a meeting. Such a fraud were they. Another questionable thing about that meeting, it was presided over by a heathen emperor whereas the council at Jerusalem was presided over by one whom the Holy Spirit had chosen, James, the Lord's brother. Let me put in parenthesis here also. Think what you will about the council of Nicaea and all the other councils. I put no stock in any councils except the council at Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. Outside of that, all those other councils were more to do with the traditions of men, greed, power, and despotism, and less to do with the word of God. 
So I have no confidence in anything that went on in those, and I don't pay them any mind. Now, looking at the epistles of Paul, they do not anywhere explicitly or implicitly indicate that there was anyone in the church who was recognized as its visible head, like which is wrapped up in the doctrine of the papacy of the Roman Catholic Church's conception of one vast church, highly organized with a hierarchical form of government headed by a fallen man called a pope. Roman Catholicism's conception of the church is alien to the New Testament. Neither can it be found in the book of Acts and certainly not in Paul's epistles, not anywhere in the New Testament. Matter of fact, it was the apostle Paul in his statement which said, besides all those things that are without, talking about all the things he'd faced, the suffering he'd gone through, that which cometh on me daily, the care of all the churches. He said it's laid that Besides all these other things I've gone through, he said, there's laid on me daily the care of the churches, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty eight. Paul must have been interfering with somebody else's office. If Peter was the Pope, why was Paul now taking upon his shoulders to be the head of the church and taking it away from Papa Peter, the Pope, the Holy Father? The epistles of Paul, look at them, Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, Titus, Philemon, the Epistle to Hebrews. If indeed Paul was the human author of it, you will read them all in vain to discover anything to indicate that the Apostle Paul, who wrote the major part of the New Testament, ever heard of a pope or anybody like him. You will search his writings in vain and find no record or proof of the papacy there. So we can exclude all these writings in the New Testament for our evidence of the papacy. Now, one might suppose that Peter, if he had received such a commission, establishing him to be the Pope, when he wrote his epistle, the second, I might add, which was written near the end of his life. If like our Roman Catholic teacher alleges, Peter would have reigned as pontiff for 25 years in Rome. You'd have think, you would think that Peter himself would have known something about it. And that is surely conceivable, if indeed he had occupied that office. Why did he simply call himself an apostle of Jesus Christ? And when he exhorts the elders and says, I am also an elder, nowhere does he claim to have been appointed head of the church. Let's just for illustration purposes, consider the idea that Peter was the Pope over the church in the city of Rome all that time. Now, we do not quote tradition here, but we simply Take, but we're simply taking and examining the historical record of the word of God itself, the Bible, because the church of Rome claims that Peter had a pontificate of about 25 years, beginning his reign in the year 41 or 42 AD and continuing to his martyrdom, perhaps around 67 AD. If that be so, one might expect some reference to it somewhere in the New Testament. I affirm and I shall endeavor to prove that that statement is impossible to prove from the New Testament scriptures and from those same scriptures to prove that Peter ever visited Rome at all. Let's look at the idea of Peter being in Rome. It was purely tradition and not Bible that says Peter was martyred in Rome and at his own request, he was crucified head down because he thought he was not worthy to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord. That is not Bible. You don't find that in the scriptures. That's purely conjecture of men. But even if that fact could be historically proven, which it cannot, 
it still would not prove that he was Bishop of Rome. It is only tradition that may or may not have an element of truth in it. Tradition is only conjecture or opinions and is highly irreliable, unreliable. We preach Bible truth as fact and not traditions as sandy foundations. A word of caution here, you better be careful quoting traditions in your sermons because you don't know whether you're quoting truth or error. You may have to stand before God and give account of preaching a lie when you assumed you were preaching the truth. The church is not built upon tradition, but upon Christ through the ministry of the word of God. Peter may have been murdered in Rome. We don't know it to be so from the New Testament scriptures. The word of God does not say so, but even if he were murdered in Rome, there's no scriptural evidence of him having been the visible head of the church in Rome. In fact, I believe the general teaching of scripture is to the contrary. But just a note here for illustrational purposes. Now, the epistle to the Romans was written by the apostle Paul, probably around 58 AD. That date is generally accepted by Bible scholars. If the allegations of our Roman scholar be true, that Peter became bishop of Rome in 41 or 42 AD, he would have been reigning on his golden throne in Rome for some 16 years when Paul wrote his epistle to the Romans. Remember now, that's the same Peter. In the book of Acts, chapter 3 and verse 6, it said to the lame man at the gate, silver and gold have I none. If the Roman scholar is right, Peter must have learned the same get-rich formulas that the charismatic money-grubbing preachers do today and get and got rich fast. Think about that for a little bit. Search the scriptures to the Romans for yourself. It does not speak of Peter being in Rome or that he was bishop of Rome. Paul writes to the Romans and tells them for a long time he's been wanting to visit them that he might have some fruit among them, he said. So much is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. Romans chapter 1 verse 15. I recall, I recall Paul saying on another occasion in Romans 15 and 20, I do not build upon another man's foundation. Now, according to our scholar in the Roman Catholic Church, there must have been a well-established church there in Rome with Peter at the head for at least 16 years at the time Paul addressed his epistle to the Romans. Read the epistle carefully. You will notice that it contains a number of salutations to, to people of whom Paul had sent and was sending greetings. But he does not say anywhere for them to remember him to Bishop Peter. He does not send his greetings to the alleged Bishop of Rome at all. If Peter, whom Paul knew quite well, that same Peter had occupied such an influential position in the early apostolic church for Paul to write to Rome where Peter had already been reigning. If what the Roman Catholic scholar suggests for 16 years and completely ignores Peter's position and presence would have been the essence of discourtesy. There are people today who will go all the way from this and other continents to Rome, just hoping possibly to get a glimpse of the Pope. In his epistle to the Romans, Paul is absolutely silent on the subject of Peter's presence in Rome. I have a shrewd suspicion that the reason for it was that Peter was not there and Paul knew that he was not there. Paul's prison epistles. Several of these were written from Rome. He was a prisoner in Rome for some time, the book of Acts tells us. 
Paul dwelt two whole years in his own house and received all that came unto him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those saints which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him, Acts chapter 28, verse 30 and 31. That Paul had a house there in Rome is worth noting, and that the writer of the book of the Acts of the Apostles recorded this. Also, he recorded Paul's arrival at Rome and his subsequent course of actions. Why would the writer fail to mention the presence of so important a person as Peter if our Roman Catholic scholars' teaching is true? Look at the epistle to the Ephesians. It was written from Rome. There were several epistles written from prison by Paul. Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, 2 Timothy. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, he says, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles. In this epistle, Paul makes no mention of Peter. He does refer to Trichias, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, who apparently carried the epistle from Rome to Ephesus. Paul wanted to give the Ephesians news of his own personal affairs by word of mouth, as well as a written letter, Ephesians 6, 21, 22. But if as the Roman Catholic Church contends that Peter, having been Bishop of Rome from around 21 AD, it's a strange omission or a deliberate act of neglect not to make the slightest illusion to Peter either as apostle or bishop. From what I have gleaned from the New Testament, I don't believe that Peter was in Rome. Now we could go on and on to the epistle to the Philippians, Colossians, 2 Timothy, the book of Revelations. And all of them would also stand in stark contrast to our Roman scholar's statements and testify against the Roman Catholic Church's claim to the, to the authority of the papacy in the New Testament. The New Testament itself rejects Rome's claims and repudiates it by its own words. Let's look at the Apostle John's epistle. The Apostle John outlived all the others. We know this by our study of the gospel and his gospel and epistles. And also from the book of Revelation, which had to have been written long after much of the New Testament. For Christ appearing to John gives us a picture of the church much later in the seven churches. Long after Paul and Peter were dead, there must have been 30 some odd years that elapsed between Paul's second, second epistle to Timothy and the writing of John's first epistle. John must be at this time an elderly man when he wrote his epistle, somewhere around 95 AD. Now, doesn't it seem strange if there had been appointed any head of the church, any one particular man, one might have supposed that John would have known something about it. After all, the church was passing into the second century AD. Quite a bit of time had elapsed that there is not the remotest illusion of it in either of John's three epistles, the Gospel of John or Revelation. In John's book, Revelation, we have something alluded to about a vision of a monstrosity that would resemble the papacy in Revelation 17, 1 through 6. And there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, and I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. That many waters now, that's always in Bible referring to a lot of people. So that's, a, that's a ruling over a lot of people with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, inhabitants of the earth have been drunk with the wine of her fornication. 
So he carried me away into the spirit, into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And, her and upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus Christ. Not, an, not another religion on the world has shed the blood of so many across the world in the hundreds of years that it was in great power. And while we're on the subject of John, if anyone was going to be a successor to Peter, it would have been John and not Pope Linus, the one that the Roman Catholic Church by tradition says was the first recipient of Peter's chair. It would only make sense to any reasonable student of the word of God that had Peter in fact been the Pope, his successor would have been the Apostle John, the last of the apostles to live. Another fact to consider is the appointment of Peter's successor, as our Roman Catholic scholar allows, alludes. If it be so that Peter was martyred somewhere about the year 67 or so AD, one might suppose that some provision would have been made for a successor in the New Testament. Now, that's what the Roman Catholic Church alleges. Surely there would have been something in the New Testament about such an important event. You that are familiar with the New Testament, let your mind run from Matthew to Revelation and ask yourself whether there is a remotest suggestion anywhere of a gathering of the heads of the churches to elect one of their members as Pope, a conclave of cardinals to elect one of their own number to be the vicar of Christ and God's representative on earth and one to whom the world of mankind would in final submission bow to this man be the and, and that be the term of their salvation. Was anything more absurd ever offered for human reception than the present pretensions of Rome and how amazing that so large a part of the world's population should have accepted these claims as valid as though they came out of Holy Scripture. You're talking about the proverbial needle in a haystack to try and find the authority of the papacy in the New Testament. It just simply is not there. I want to make two simple observations. First, that the whole spirit of the papacy is alien to the New Testament teachings. Neither Paul, Peter, or any of the other apostles were princes of the church. There's not a single word in the New Testament, nor from any one of the apostles who accompanied with our Lord, presuming to reign over the other individuals in the church. On the contrary, they were forbidden by the Lord to lord it over God's heritage. In Mark's gospel, Chapter 11, verse 35 through 36. And I might say here, I wouldn't need any other proof. This is proof enough to let me know that God didn't choose one particular man out of the fallen human race to be the Lord over all the other men. For he's forbidden by scripture for the church. Look at Mark chapter 11, 35 through 43. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came unto him saying, Master, we would that thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we shall ask. And he said unto them, What would you that I do for you? And they said unto him, Grant unto us that we may sit, one on thy right hand and the other on thy left hand, in thy glory. 
But Jesus said unto them, you know not what you ask. Can you drink of the cup that I drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said unto him, we can. And Jesus said unto them, you shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of. And with the baptism that I am baptized, with all shall ye be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. And when the 10 heard it down there, the other 10 apostles were listening. They were standing over there now listening to these two, trying to get Jesus to give them some favors over the other 10. And the Bible said that when the 10 heard it, they began to be much displeased. They, they said to James and John, who do you think you are? That you should have preeminence over us or you'd have some special place. But then Jesus seeing that, call them to him and said unto them, you know not, you know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and their great ones exercise authority. He's talking about the religious world today. But so, but so shall it not be among you. But whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister. He said it's not to be in the church. It's not to be in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is the leader of the church. Christ is the head. He will never be replaced. He does not need to be replaced. He is the final head of the church. Secondly, the conception of a hierarchical government over the church is pagan. It was never Christian to begin with. When we see that today in this religious world, this is nothing more than paganism. It is not Christian, and it is not in the New Testament. You do not have guidelines in the word of God for the monstrosities that we call churches and church organizations today. Now, in conclusion, <clears throat> let me conclude by telling you what the New Testament does say about the church and its officers. The New Testament abounds with teachings respecting the church a body of regenerated people, of believers who have been born again. The Bible said, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his, his God does the translating, God does putting the putting into his kingdom, into the church, not some man. God has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son in whom we have written his dear son. That's the church. You can't, you can't read it any other way in whom we have redemption through his blood. We're saved. We're redeemed. We're put in the church by the blood of Jesus. Even the forgiveness of sins. It is through faith in Christ and repentance that our sins are forgiven through the blood, not through some man. Colossians 1, 12 through 14. Who is the church? Those that have been called out from the world, separated from the world, called unto the gospel of Christ. You will find the record of companies of people who have come together to pray and to worship and observe the ordinances and approach God through the one and only mediator, Jesus Christ, our Lord, without, this, without the assistance of dead or living saints or angels, and certainly without the help of an earthly priest, the privilege of direct access to God at his mercy seat 
by the one and only high priest Jesus Christ is taught plainly in the Holy Scriptures. When the veil in the temple was written, Twain was torn into from the top to the bottom. That was symbolic of access now into the holy place through the blood of Christ, through what Christ has done. We now can come, as the Bible said, to come boldly before the throne of grace and consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Jesus Christ, Hebrews 3 and 1. Jesus Christ and not a pope is the one we go to. Furthermore, you will find the alleged first Pope Peter telling those to whom he writes that they are all priests, but you're a chosen generation. It's not just a group of people that's just been called to be priests, but Peter said you, talking to the church, talking to all the same, you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, First Peter 2 and 9. We do not need a priest. We have one high priest, Jesus Christ who has entered into heaven itself with his own blood, now to appear in the presence of God for us, Hebrews chapter nine. The simplest person and youngest child who can but list, lisp the name of the great, great savior may kneel before him and find exception. The most vilest sinner and purest saint come on the same terms and find exception, acceptance at the same place, the mercy seat, the throne of grace. Come now. The, 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 the curtain's been torn. The way to God has been made open through what Christ did on the cross. And it is only through the precious blood of Christ. How beautiful and simply really this all is. You know that? I would have you to see what a grotesque mis misrepresentation of God is involved in the assumption that the Lord who made heaven and earth and filled them both with beauty is responsible for the mummery of the Roman Catholic Church. May God save us from turning again to the weak and beggarly elements of the world from which he through the spirit of grace has forever emancipated us. We may be only the father's little children, but we have a great intercessor. We can talk to him. We can stammer out our poor prayers. We can worship him anywhere and anytime. It was John Newton that said and made the great statement. I was a great, great sinner, but Christ is a great, great savior. I hope that you will study well these three lessons on the papacy. And if you have been blinded by such, if you have accepted Rome's false teaching without question, I would ask you today to really consider just what it is that you believe and whom you have believed in and that you turn to the Lord Jesus Christ before it is too late. If you would like any more information on this podcast, then contact me at lawrence.register at yahoo.com and I'll be glad to answer any of your questions or talk with you in any way that I can help you. If you would like prayer for salvation or any other needs, contact us again at this email address. Also in written form of this manuscript, I would like to note my indebtedness to several whom I have gleaned from their wisdom in the word of God on this subject and to many who have left us writings on the history of the papacy. Good day. I'd rather be in a deep, dark grave 